From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about ballot initiatives. That, you know, there's there's a lot of rules on how procedurally these get put forward, but from a subject matter standpoint, I think it's open season. And so if if all of the registered voters in Nebraska signed a petition that says amend the Constitution to require the governor to wear a, a Groucho mask, <laughs> I think he'd have to do it. Worsner explains the stuff you probably groan at every time you vote. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events. And we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero, in which case, ouch. But okay, if you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more more importantly, thank you for listening. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Ballot initiatives are often written in dense, complex syntax that make it difficult to decipher what exactly you're voting for. Even if you do understand the basic argument, it's not always clear what their implications are or how voting either way will affect you. So we thought it'd be worth taking a show to talk about that annoying, boring section of the ballot that you'll see this November. Matthew Worsner is back on the show to discuss the concept of ballot initiatives, Nebraska's history with them, and a little bit about what made the cut this year. Here is our conversation. The thing about ballot initiatives is there are these long, dense pieces of text that you can't quite decide if you want to read. And if you do read it, sometimes you're not sure if it's worth your energy to figure out what it's actually saying. And I know I've been bad in the past. uh, And somebody actually asked me if I could have someone on the show to explain what these ballot initiatives are because it's just too much brain power when you go in to vote for a lot of people to figure out what to do with them. Uh, So essentially – just like last time you were on the show, you're here today to make something boring, fun, and oh digestible. So good you luck. Had, you had the choice of anybody in the world, and I'm who you landed on. Who would you pick? Well, Governor Ricketts. Interesting. Okay. Why couldn't you have gotten that get? I think he, he might have some opinions uh, that would come through that mean something different than you, who is not the governor, saying that. You know, I... I will not proclaim myself to be an expert in the topic. I did a lot of research into it, and I think I, I have a, a very lawyery standpoint. Yeah, that's what I want. On it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm going to try to be the worstner special. Yes, if I can be educational and also not be a fool at the same time, I think that this will be a success. Okay, so let's start with the big broad question: What's a ballot initiative? Sure. So. The Constitution dictates how we, A, make laws, B, change laws, and C, how we change the Constitution. The federal Constitution does not have a ballot initiative process. 
this is purely a creature of state government, but at the the 10,000 foot level, what it is is it's the process by which citizens are able to vote on new laws, a repeal of a prior law, or changes to the Nebraska Constitution. A lot of states have a ballot initiative procedure. Uh, Nebraska is one of them, but it's totally functionally different from the federal government. So we all learned in social studies to change the Constitution. You got to have a bill passed or an amendment by the the House or the Senate, two-thirds, and then it goes to the states. And then a supermajority of the states have to vote on it or two-thirds majority of the states have to have a constitutional convention to propose their own amendment. Um, That doesn't really work in Nebraska because we don't have a a House and a Senate for one, and we don't have multiple levels of, of government that function the same way for two. And so what the ballot initiative process does is, in theory, it gives the citizens a direct vote in being able to change laws or change the Constitution. There are other states out there that they do it differently. Um, They have an indirect vote system where there's an initiative and if it passes, it goes to their legislature. And if their legislature does or doesn't, or if their legislature doesn't act on it, the citizens are allowed to then vote on whether or not the thing should become a law. Or if the legislature does pass it, it becomes a law the natural way. Um, But as with many aspects of the government, the the process is really complicated and is really convoluted. And this is something that has existed in Nebraska for a really, really long time. And it's something that has been used a lot in Nebraska. Not as much as California, but it's something that has been used a lot. Well, so a question I have when you say there's like the natural way to pass laws, which is we're always taught as well in social studies that you elect representatives and your representatives in theory care what you think and care what you want the country to look like and might do things based on what they think you want to change or not change. Sure. So why why do we have this separate thing? Like essentially a more direct democracy, everything would be ballot initiatives instead of having representatives, right? Yeah, theoretically. But then at the same time, Um, That's very inefficient. And there are some things that are – they're very mundane that really don't need every citizen's input on it. Think about the CEO of a big company. Is the CEO of General Electric, let's say, do they really need to be concerned with the hourly wage for uh, a janitor? That's, That's so far below the chain of command. There are certain things that the the legislature does that the people need to have a direct say in, and there's other things that, yes, they they could or should have a say in it, but just the basic functioning of the government and our the basic functioning of our society, it's just it's time inefficient and it's cost inefficient to pass all of those decisions on to people, and that's part of the reason why government exists, I guess. But so a ballot initiative oftentimes is something that the legislature was unable to pass, right? And so then they turn directly to the people. Right. So it's not like there's a gatekeeper saying, oh, this should be in the legislative agenda. This should be a ballot initiative. It's just do you get the signatures? 
Right. And this will come up and I'll delve into it in exacting detail later. But I, I think the theory behind ballot initiatives in Nebraska is that the people are supposed to have a say and their ability to have a say is so fundamental to our democracy that this is a thing that they're another check and balance that they're able to have on their own, separate and distinct from what the legislature does. Especially because if if you get a legislature in there, you know, a new unicameral in there that does things that the people don't want, which is possible. The people, I've heard of that happening. <laughs> right. The people have to have a, a stopgap in, in some way to make sure that the representative democracy stays a representative democracy. In theory, I don't know where the overlap is between like laws or what what the subject of a ballot initiative could be. But like say in theory, I got all the signatures and it passed that Governor Ricketts now has to wear a Groucho Marx mask for the next <laughs> 10 years. Like can, we, can you just do things like that or what, how does it get decided? Is, is there anyone actually saying or it's just sort of like it gets filters – it gets filtered through how much interest there is. The, you know, there's there's a lot of rules on how procedurally these get put forward. But from a subject matter standpoint, I think it's open season. And so if <laughs> if all of the registered voters in Nebraska signed a petition that says amend the Constitution to require the governor to wear a, a Groucho mask, <laughs> I think he'd have to do it. I I'm think, not. I'm not endorsing that, but I am saying it would be funny. Uh, yeah, abs- absolutely, it would. But to take that to a, another completely ridiculous extreme, could the citizens put forward an initiative that says murder is legal? Well, yeah, that's that's the where I want to go with it. But I thought we'd let's baby steps to murder here. Sure. Yeah. I I I think so. And any person that says no, you can't. Okay, we can amend the Constitution just because there's a law out there that we've repealed. We can amend the Constitution to say you have a fundamental right to murder whoever you want. Yeah, the it, purge for yeah, something like that. Is is that going to happen? I I don't think so. But so we we just hope that democracy will filter out the craziest ideas. Even so, even with good ideas or ideas that people really want, the process is so complicated that things that the majority of people have voted for before don't even end up on the ballot. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about ballot initiatives. Do you think Nebraska should implement voter ID laws or a $15 minimum wage? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Okay, so let's let's delve into that then. What are some of those? What are some like if we go back historically? What's a notable example? Yeah, so I, I think the big one is is medical marijuana, and that has garnered a number of objections from people in different levels of the government, both um, the legislative branch and the executive branch, and law enforcement personnel as well. Um, But let me give you an idea of what the rules are, and then I'll I'll go into two two different challenges that have come up recently on medical marijuana petitions. So I didn't didn't know any of this stuff, and I have to go off of notes because it's convoluted. So in order to get an initiative onto the ballot, it requires a petition signed by 7% of the 
of the registered voters um, in the state. And right off the bat, that's a problem because the specific language says registered voters as of the date that the petition is submitted to the Secretary of State. You don't know how many there are until that, how many registered voters there are until that date. And so you have a moving goalpost. Um, and so you have to overshoot the number that you think that you need to make sure that you have a cushion in there, for one. Um, for two, not every signature counts. It has to be a verified signature. And and so if you get 100 signatures and 75 of them turn out to be valid uh, verified signatures, um, you may have missed your goal without even knowing that that you did so. Um, but so it's 7% as of a couple days ago when I looked, that's about 87,000 people for an amendment to the Constitution, it's 10% of the registered voters. Um, and then a referendum is a little different and breaks down. It's it's 5% for a referendum or 10% for a referendum with an automatic suspension of the law in question until the day of the general election. That petition, you, you go out, you collect your signatures. It has to be submitted then four months prior to the general election. So you do all of this legwork, you do all this effort just to get the question put onto the ballot. And then it goes to um, it goes to all of the citizens registered to vote in the general election. And then just like any other thing out there, you have to have a, a majority of the voters vote to approve it. And then it'll become a law or a change to the constitution or repeal of the law. Yeah, that's actually another question I had. So if something passes as a ballot initiative, is there anything, like say something ridiculous, like say Governor Ricketts says, I don't want to wear a Groucho mask, (laughs) but it did pass. Can he do anything? Yeah. So first and foremost, he could just not do it. I mean, which is a little ridiculous to say, but from a practical standpoint, he could just not follow the law. But um, ballot initiatives can still be overruled by the legislature. And so the legislature, but they, the legislature has a higher burden. And so instead of a simple majority required to, um, to repeal a citizen-initiated law, it requires a two-thirds supermajority. For a constitutional amendment, they, the legislature doesn't get to just wave a magic wand. That has to go through the same processes and procedures. But then um, the governor does not have the right to veto. And so um, really it boils down to the citizens would have the ability to repeal it again later or the legislature, if they got enough votes, would have the ability to repeal it. And so a lot of this is a history of issues that don't make the cut or they get sort of close or they don't get the signatures. But the the failure one year might lead to a momentum that builds, and it seems like that's the, the strategy with medical marijuana, right? Yeah, a little bit. And so um, a couple years ago, there there was a challenge to the petition. They had, they had garnered enough support to get it on the ballot, um, but that got tossed out. Um, but let's let's take them out of order. Let's do the one most recently because there's still one other requirement 
in order to get the initiative on, and that's that 5% of the registered voters in two-fifths of the counties have to sign the petition. And that that's a mouthful, but there's 93 counties, and two-fifths is 37 counties, and so you have to get support from 5% of the people in 37 counties. That was recently challenged um, in this most recent cycle with the, a medical marijuana petition on equal protection grounds. And the medical marijuana people had requested a, a temporary injunction from a judge preventing the Secretary of State from enforcing this rule. Uh, and that was granted. And the case, I didn't read anything other than just the injunction because that really told me all I needed to know about the case. Um, the Secretary of State's office made some arguments in there that were, were interesting, to say the least. So uh, as I read through this case, the, the judge in it said, as with many other judges uh, in other states, that I am not going to enforce this rule because it violates equal protection and it violates the one person, one vote rule. And, and the judge specifically uses some data and some numbers. And he says there's, there's 357,000 registered voters in, in Douglas County and there's 337 voters in Arthur County. Is it fair to make the medical marijuana people go to Arthur County to get the signature of 17 people versus making them go to Douglas County and get the signature of 18,000 people. The Secretary of State's office actually argues in there that this, this rule, this two-fifths rule, does a good job of preventing voter fraud and distributing the work in this ballot process among the various counties. And I could feel the judge scratching his, his head when the Secretary of State made that point. One, because there was absolutely no evidence anywhere in, in the case that there was any voter fraud going on at all, for one. And for two, I'm hopeful the Secretary of State didn't think that Arthur County has the same number of election officials that Douglas County does. Um, and that the one or two people that work in Arthur County are really comparable workload-wise to the you know probably hundreds of people that work in Douglas County, and the the court essentially said, yeah, that argument is is totally ridiculous. But it, I, I drilled down into the numbers, and Douglas County, Lancaster County, and, and Sarpy County actually have fifty-five percent of the registered voters in the state. And the curiosity that I had was, should those three counties with a majority right there get the say in all laws? I, I think the answer is no. Well, that's that's where you get into philosophical questions of, is it the, the people? So like in theory, one person, one vote, right? Uh, a group of people is more than one person and so they're going to have more power and they should have more voice just because of the the amount of you know density right but the flip side is somebody in Arthur County they their votes not worth nothing 
And I, I could, and I've always been a city boy, but I, I can see the flip side of that being, why should those people way out there get a say in everything that happens? That, that's what that's what democracy is, though. Well, I mean, we have the majority in Douglas County. And, in this particular case, people tend to have strong, politicized, polarized opinions on marijuana. Right. I imagine that plays into some of this thinking and which fights people choose to have. Right. And, and in the prior um, in the prior petition that was put forward, the, the Secretary of State was one of the people who said, yeah, I don't want this um, particular uh, law to be put on the ballot. But there are there were um, a number of people in the government, the Lancaster County Sheriff, the governor himself, all came out and had opinions. Mm-hmm. And um, they don't necessarily have a direct ability to change anything, but they those types of people have a platform. And if the law actually says, yes, um, you have to go to Arthur County or Hooker County or wherever in the panhandle or the middle of Nebraska in order to get votes, that takes a lot more time, effort, energy, and money. And if the governor with his platform is able to say medical marijuana is bad. Oh, I got, you want to quote from him specifically? Absolutely. Okay, so he did a press conference in 2020 and his direct quote was, if you legalize marijuana, you're going to kill your kids. <laughs> I empathize with the medical marijuana people because how do you fight that, especially when the law requires that you have to expend an enormous amount of time, effort, and energy in order to get signatures from people that are geographically incredibly far away from you? The The good news is the federal judge stayed enforcement of that law uh, or that rule because it that rule is unfair. And um, I don't want to shock you, but the the Constitution doesn't usually look favor on um, different rules that have denominations of, of five, three-fifths, three two-fifths, whatever it is. Th- those are not things that, that belong in the Constitution. Um, but, you know, ultimately, um, it didn't matter anyway because they didn't give it, get enough votes this time. So they, they've actually worked backwards. But the net result for the medical marijuana camp is, is still the same. They have not been able to get this particular issue on the ballot. Um, the There was one other thing that I thought was really fun that the Secretary of State's office argued in this, this most recent Eggers versus Evanen case. Um, he argued that the right to vote and the right to vote on an initiative are two different things. And in, in essence, argue you don't have the right to vote on an initiative. It was really very confusing and really very backwards. And the the court kind of took him to task, his office to task a little bit and said, no, that's foolish. You have the right to vote. You have the right to vote. You don't get to bifurcate this into separate things. But I, so – I think that people are emboldened because these rules sound so clearly arbitrary and made up that they're sort of like, why don't I just make up something too and see if it sticks? Right, right. And, and in the going back a couple years, the previous challenge that was brought up, 
I remember I wasn't paying attention to what was in the news or and I hadn't voted or signed any petitions or anything like that. And I remember when the case came down from the Supreme Court on the single subject rule, I read that and I'm like, is this a joke? Did they just make this up? And I, I read it back then and I read it a couple times over the last few weeks and I'm a law person. This is what I do professionally. And I read this over and over and again. And I'm like, I, I can't figure out what the rule is. It's so arbitrary and, and out of nowhere and spacey. I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about ballot initiatives. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Chats listeners, I'm Maria Corpus, and I am a writer, activist, and community organizer here in Omaha. You may recognize my voice from when I was a guest on Riverside Chats last year, but starting this fall, I'm going to get to host a show which I am so excited about. Don't worry, Tom is not going anywhere. He'll still be behind the mic for most episodes, and I'll just fill in on occasion to bring you conversations with the people who make Omaha what it is. I am so happy to get to be joining the show because of the people who are really influencing the culture of Omaha and making a difference in their community. And I am just so honored to get to be a part. My biggest thanks to KIOS and Riverside Chats for bringing me on board. We'll see you soon. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. And remember, you can check out the backlog of all of these episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, we'd really love it if you'd give us a review. Today I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about ballot initiatives. What are they? How do they affect you? What's on the ballot this year? Here's the rest of our conversation where we delve into the answers to those questions. I think the biggest problem I hear about ballot initiatives is people just struggle to read them and they don't know what they mean. Where is the the wording on a ballot initiative come from? Um, the the petition itself can propose what the language would be and then the Secretary of State has the ability to offer clarifications or has the ability to, to certify that the language actually matches what the petition is. But I I agree with you um, that a lot of these are very challenging and I I don't think I've ever actually voted in person before. I think I've only ever <laughs> done an, an absentee early voting thing but I can imagine me in in an election booth and I see this huge bulk of text and I'm looking at it and I'm like, no, I'm hungry. I'm not going to read this. I, I'm going to move on. Um, and, and, you know, I, I read things every day for a living. And if I can't understand what it means, how does somebody who doesn't have special training in this read that? And I'll tell you from from my review of the case and my review of the 2018, I think it is, uh, medical marijuana petition. I think the people with that didn't, they they did a a good job, but they did a bad job. How so? So that particular um, proposed amendment, it was nine parts. And it was a proposal that said the people have, a person has the right to use, possess, um, grow, sell medical marijuana for or marijuana for a, a medical purpose, and it was it was like a three hundred word sentence, and 
I, I got what they were trying to do. They were trying to capture everything because I could very easily see um, if, if the amendment actually said you have the right to use marijuana, um, the argument being from a county attorney somewhere, you don't have the, the right to possess it or the right to grow it or whatever. And so they tried to capture everything in it. But by capturing everything in it, they made it this big cumbersome text that was was open to a challenge on this signal subject rule and that's how and these this marijuana deal is a hot button issue for the Nebraska government but they keep getting bounced on technicalities and this um, this Wagner versus Evan case from a couple years ago with this signal single subject rule um, the Secretary of State actually says, yes, I think that this nine-part uh, amendment is okay to go on the ballot. And the Lancaster County Sheriff, among others, sues to block this from ending up on the ballot. And the Because Nebraska, it was so long? Uh, well, they wanted to, their argument was it, it violates the single subject rule. And what, that, what, that, is, what are the parameters of that? Yeah. It was, I, you were reading my mind. So the purpose of the, according to the Supreme Court in this case, the purpose of the single subject rule is to prevent joining multiple ideas together. Um, and it's to prevent somebody being forced to vote for one thing that they want joins together with something else that they don't want. So how Congress passes every bill. Basically. At a federal level. Yeah, it's to prevent <laughs> log rolling, which is, that's, that's how government functions. But the idea is if you're going to pass a bill about requiring the government to wear Groucho glasses, mm. you can't also add that with a bill <laughs> Legalizing that, murder. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. Um, but- I, I think as a layman, if if I'm told the state of Nebraska has legalized medical marijuana, I interpret that to mean you have the right to grow it, you have the right to sell it, you have the right to use it, you have the right to possess it. Um, but the objectors successfully convinced the Nebraska Supreme Court that this um, particular amendment had so many different subject matter in it and that using marijuana was different than possessing it, was different than growing it, was different than selling it. But what was, and this actually links back to, um, think about the, I forget what year it is, when unicameral, 1938, the vote on- You're the expert on this. I, as I, I am not the expert, but the, the vote on the unicameral there were there were three initiatives that were put forward that year. Two of them were on gambling, and one of them was on the unicameral. And one of the arguments that I had seen, and one of the arguments that I actually kind of believe, is that many people voted for the unicameral because it sounded like one of the forms of betting that people were had gotten onto the ballot. And although those things weren't joined together, people just voted for all of them together. And if they were, you know, a lot of people who go to the casino smoke, that's why um, smoking is still allowed in a lot of casinos. It, but if you said everybody who gambles smokes, therefore we have to have these two things joined together in this initiative, no, it doesn't work. 
Um, but what kind of bummed me out a little bit about this was my takeaway was the single subject requirement for a ballot initiative is totally in the eye of, of the beholder. And the only sensible and reasonable thing that came out of that particular case came from the dissent. And the dissenting judge said, in his opinion, the initiative is a process which courts are zealous to preserve to the fullest tenable measure of spirit as well as letter. Now, I know what you're thinking, what on earth does that mean? We, we didn't all go to Harvard, though, um, like this particular judge did. But what that means is the courts are supposed to give a lot of leniency to the ballot measures. And there have been a number of cases over the years where that particular quote has been used by other courts to uphold a ballot initiative or to make the rules more relaxed or to make sure what the people want ends up on the ballot. And the last couple years, a lot of those challenges have been bouncing things from the ballot that I think the majority of people want. What the majority of people want is not always the priority, it sounds like. No, no, of course not. Um, I, I, I found it a little difficult to, to do some of the research because the data really wasn't in one cohesive place. But there was, a, there was some, some numbers that I wanted to throw at you. Um, my understanding of what the courts have said is that this is a right that the people have. It's very important that we uphold this very personal right for people. Um, I found 116 measures that ended up on the ballot over the years since Nebraska first had this process. 16 of them were about gambling. I don't know that many individuals that care that much about gambling that they're on their own initiative going to go out and try to stump for votes for a petition on, on gambling. That's, that's big business that's doing that. And Why? What's the motivation? Money. Yeah. If Nebraska hasn't had gambling for a very long time and there have been a number of petitions over the years starting in like the 1920s to get various forms of gambling in Nebraska and over and over and over again, the people have voted against it. And it, it, as much as you like to knock him, Governor Ricketts did come out in, in 2020 and say correctly that the people have historically rejected bringing gambling to Nebraska because it's a societal ill that we don't want to have. Um, I'm a little pessimistic and a little cynical. If you look at the campaign money from the most recent um, process, the most recent election cycle, $6.7 million, I think was the number of the $7 million that was used in support of bringing gambling to Nebraska came from one particular corporation that is building a casino currently. I don't have $6.7 million and I don't well, care that I'm, much I'm about anything. I'm glad that Governor Ricketts came out against using personal funds to forward <laughs> a political agenda. That's really – it's hard, hard to disagree with that. I, yeah, it's fair. But, you know, my, my point is I, I don't know that I buy it, that that's exactly why this – that this rule and process exists to help the people – I think with with most other things that come out of the government, it's just a way to help big businesses in some way, shape, or form. 
Or at least in theory, it started out with good intentions, but in reality, only a big company or people with deep pockets are going to be able to garner the, the money and the support that they need to make these kind of things happen. Yeah, well, so as far as gambling goes, I remember in 2020, there was Ballot Initiative 430, which authorized gambling and licensed racetracks. And that's actually a good example of one where I feel like I get what it's saying. I don't really understand the impact it's going to have on me. And so when I go to the ballot box, I'm just sort of guessing, like, I don't know, I guess I don't really care about this, right? So here's here's my instinct, my knee jerk. I, yeah, and I... I'll be honest, for the most part, when I get to the ballot is the first time that I've heard about most of this stuff before. I don't really have my my finger on the pulse of societal issues, I guess. But that, you know, I I think the last time I was here, one of the things I harped on was that voters need to be a little bit more educated on taxes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm being a little hypocritical. But at the same time, how are you supposed to make a value judgment at the ballot box if it's the first time that you've seen it before. And if only 87,000 people in the state need to sign off on, on getting this into the, into the election, that's substantially less than a majority of the citizens. And so it's more likely than not, I'm guessing, that any particular issue is going to be seen by people for the first time come election day. And if most laws are public policy, is this really the best method and route to be able to make huge changes like that? You've heard me complain before that I don't think it it should be that easy to amend the Constitution. Yes. And the federal Constitution has been amended 27 times. The Nebraska Constitution has been amended 237 times. I... If it's just supposed to be the outline of how the game is played, I just don't think that it should be that easy. And the flip side is the federal constitution is way too complicated to to amend uh, because of the way that our political system exists today. But ultimately, I don't know that this process is a good thing. We can't change that, though. And so like, what you're here to do really is help us parse through some of what might be on the ballot. There's a photo ID required for voting, and there's a proposal to raise Nebraska's minimum wage to $15 by 2026. I'm very curious to see where the voters will end up on this, um, because a couple years ago, we had the vote to cap on an initiative to cap what a delayed deposit service, a payday lender, could, could charge in interest rates. And that got overwhelming support. And that's definitely a very predatory industry. But they weren't lying when they said, if you pass this law, we're going to close our doors. Very shortly thereafter, like every payday lending place in town closed. And a lot of those businesses offered check cashing services. And a lot of uh, people who are immigrants or don't speak English or don't have a social security number or whatever and are unable to get a bank account didn't have the ability to cash something so simple as their paycheck. And I I only know about this because I represent somebody who was going to become a delayed deposit services company. But on its face in the ballot box, that seems like a good thing, preventing high interest rate predatory loans But what ended up happening was all of these businesses closed, all of these people lost the externalities associated with those businesses, and workers got fired. 
the minimum wage requirements, I, I'm curious to see the data on that. And I'm curious to see where the voters will end up on that. Because if you told me today that the minimum wage is going from nine something to $15 an hour, I bet you there's a gas station in Arthur County, Nebraska that's going to have to close because they can't afford to pay their employees. Not what I'm here to talk about. But yeah, maybe maybe Arthur uh, shouldn't have signed so many petitions. <laughs> True. But is there a better process for doing this, one that helps voters be a little bit more educated? Um, not sure. I don't know. I, I definitely think that there maybe needs to be some rules preventing people in the government from, from coming out and having an opinion on these kind of things. But I suppose that's neither here nor there. Yeah, good luck with that one. Yeah. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about ballot initiatives. What do you think about the repeated efforts to get medical marijuana on the ballot? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in an upcoming show. Officially on the ballot this year is an initiative to, quote, authorize local governments to spend revenue to develop commercial air travel services at local airports. And I, my gut reaction to that is, I don't know, I guess that's fine, but I don't really know what that means. I. I was under the impression the government could spend money on whatever it wanted, even if that was buying death penalty drugs. But um, yeah, I, I I don't know what that means. And I when I did a quick Google of it, not, nothing really interesting came up. On its face, that doesn't sound very offensive, but, but, but this, this is the point. Well, this seems like the kind of thing that's worth talking about because there's all these hot button issues that we've been going through. Uh, whether it's gambling, whether it's medical marijuana. In this case, people were really worked up about this, I guess, to get that many, that many signatures, right? It, it, so was that, was that a citizen-initiated ballot measure or was that a legislatively referred I don't. I don't have that in front of me. I guarantee – I bet you if you look, that, that came from the legislature because there is not one person who is – not an executive at Delta who cares about this. So wait, what's that process then? What, how can the legislature do that? I, the, the legislature just has to have enough votes to refer an amendment to the citizens and then the citizens vote on it come election time. So the legislature thought people would care enough to support it, I guess, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. I, and I, on its face, I don't know why people wouldn't, but I don't know anything about it. But <laughs> why? Why is it so hard to figure out what these are, what they mean, how they impact you? I, I don't know. And, and do you remember a couple years ago the death penalty one, mm -hmm. the repeal versus retain, and yeah. nobody had any idea what they were actually voting for? Yes. I and I, I liken this to, and this is a ridiculous example. Our my, my wife and I are in a fantasy football league with her college buddies. And every year I complain that the point system is unfair and doesn't allocate enough points to touchdowns thrown by the quarterback. And every year we're allowed to propose new rule changes. And more than once I have said, let's make this rule change. And it has been put out to a vote and the commissioner of our league has put an explanation with it and has put something with it that says what the pros and cons are. And I don't want that because the explanation and the pros and cons have sometimes actually made the substance of the rule change unclear and have detracted from what the thing actually is. Uh, there was, and I, I don't think I actually wrote down 
when it happened, but there was there was an issue. It may have been the death penalty one where the Secretary of State took out ads to where they explained the difference between the two positions. And he ended up not running the ads or pulling the ads because people said, don't do that. You're actually going to make it worse. And I think that's probably what has happened is is people who are well-meaning trying to, to explain what these things are have actually made it more complicated and less clear. Um, whether or not that's been on purpose, I, I think that probably was on purpose with the death penalty. Uh, you know, I, I don't buy it that that this was genu- genuinely confusing. I think it was deliberately confusing. But with with a lot of the other ones, I look at it and I'm like, we should just be able to boil this down to seven words and it should be a yes or no and that's that's it. And I just, I pride myself on, on trying to convey legal things simply and not everybody does that. And the government certainly doesn't do that. Yeah, well, it, it's it feels very much like this is a solvable problem and either people are in bad faith, right? Like the confusion is advantageous or you're just throwing your hands up in the air because you're sort of like, I don't know how to explain this better. So we'll see what happens. You know, the the laws are often the pulse of societal issues and how, um, how citizens feel about certain societal issues. But if if we really can't decipher and figure out where it is Nebraskans stand on the death penalty, should we even be voting for it at all? I mean, if if people read something and they don't know what it means, shouldn't they just not vote for it? I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are on how many people actually vote for ballot initiatives. Do they get much of a response? Um, what I found was the number of of proposed initiatives um, by number of petitions, the success rate is incredibly low. And then of the ones that do make it onto the ballot, the majority of them are voted voted for successfully. Or they pass. They, yeah, they pass. Does that mean that a lot of people are voting for them? Not necessarily, I guess. Well, because, you know, it's, it's not the top of the ticket, right? It's usually only the people who are really determined to fill out their whole ballots are going to get to that anyway. And even if they get to that far, then there's this obstacle of deciphering what it means. Right. And, you know, somebody like me who I just have a magnet for the word taxes, and if it doesn't say taxes, I don't (laughs) read it. But no, really, I mean, I make the effort to try to understand what these things are. But at the end of the day, if I struggle to understand it and I have special training and special skills, that means that it was done wrong. And that's you have to at least understand what you're voting for. And I don't blame the citizen for that. I blame the government for that. Yeah. Well, and okay. So the things that didn't pass, that didn't make it, or uh, that might not make the verification of their signatures to make it onto the ballot, a lot of those end up becoming part of the legislative agenda when the legislator meet legislature meets uh, in January. Do you anticipate are we going to see medical marijuana <laughs> and maybe voter ID and all these things just sort of continue to be part of the process over and over again until they pass? You know what. The very first constitutional initiative that failed was in Nebraska, no. giving women the right to vote. That didn't end up in the, the legislature the next session that had to go through the federal government. Uh, no, I don't think that uh, a, a senator from Arthur County or, or the Panhandle is going to be proposing that we have medical marijuana in, in, this, in this next session of the unicameral. I think that's unlikely. Um, but I, I do think that 
if you've got if you've got a number of tools available, I suppose there's nothing wrong with using all of them. And I I believe if a senator has a particular issue that they care about and it doesn't passes, that they have avenues available to them to garner support from people with with big pockets to get things out there before the people that they know they wouldn't get passed in the unicameral. Does it always work? No. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I suppose it's a good thing that the citizens have a direct voice in the de- democracy. Has the way that this has worked out in practice been good? No, I think it's been bonkers. But yeah, I can't say people who are really excited about democratic participation are also excited about authorizing local governments to spend revenue to develop commercial air travel services at local airports. No. And imagine – and we don't even have it that bad. Imagine living in California where they've had 500 ballot initiatives that have passed. I, I can't imagine trying to parse a ballot in, in California, especially with how confusing their property tax laws are out there. I – I don't know what you're supposed to do as a voter, I guess. You can't stay up on everything, I suppose. That's all we're trying. I guess that's all we can do. I, You know, I, I bet you if there was a new rule that said every ballot initiative has to be a maximum of, of 10 words, the state Supreme Court might issue an opinion that says marijuana is two words. <laughs> okay. I want to ask one last thing. Okay. Your prediction. If, if there was a ballot initiative to make sure that all – Governors, after they are term limited, have to wear a Groucho Marx mask for ten years. How would it do? I, you know, I, I think right now that might pass. Is it, I, I think I'm phrasing it pretty clearly. Yeah, I, I think that there is. This could be a template. There's definitely a non-zero chance for that passing. <laughs> is it? Is it good enough? I don't know. We'll see. I, if, it's up to you, voters. If, if you do the legwork, uh, I will volunteer. <laughs> and and I will gladly wear Groucho glasses to see if I can get people to vote for this. The Groucho Marx party. Yes. Starting here. I I heard in law school, and I don't know if this is true or not, talking about, <laughs> <Right. laughs> talking about amending the Constitution. So you, you may have heard part of the reason that the southern states left was slavery, right? Yeah. yeah. So when the 13th Amendment was, was going to the southern states um, – After the war is all said and done, um, I heard that the Union soldiers were posted outside of the various state houses in the South to make sure that the the vote on the 13th Amendment came out the correct way. I don't know if that's true or not. I think that's a very fun story. Is that the appropriate way for citizens to be able to uh, amend their laws? I don't think so. (laughs) Doesn't really tie back to Nebraska at all, but... I got to tie this to the Civil War somehow, well, right? We hit all your big spots. We got taxes, Civil War. I don't oh, know. I don't, is that it? That, that, that one might be a true I, I, If you throw Groucho in there, I don't know if I'll be able to catch all of that every time. <laughs> all right. Well, Matthew, thank you for coming on to try to make sense of a thank very you. confusing issue. We didn't quite solve it, but we never really do. We never do, unfortunately. Riverside Chance is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>